This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on transient ischemic attack. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Transient ischemic attacks are common in the UK, the US and around the world. And they are important mainly because of the high risk of stroke following TIA. The risk of stroke is high in the first seven days following TIA, so it's important to get on with diagnosis, investigations and management as soon as possible. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Jennifer Simpson, Associate Professor, Department of Neurology at University of Colorado School of Medicine. And importantly, Jennifer is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Jennifer, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is TIA? So a TIA is a transient ischemic attack. And the American Heart Association has defined a TIA by the tissue. It's a transient episode of neurological dysfunction caused by focal brain, spinal cord, or retinal ischemia without evidence of acute infarction. The European Stroke Organization defines it slightly differently and adds time in, into the diagnosis criteria, which says that it is focal cerebral or ocular ischemia with transient neurological symptoms that last less than 24 hours. So by definition, TIAs are transient. Most people have symptoms for less than an hour and usually less than 30 minutes. The incidence of TIA, like you said, is, is common. It's about 200,000 to 500,000 in the United States every year. And in the United Kingdom, about 46,000 have a first TIA every year. Okay, thank you. That's very, very helpful uh, to start us off. Tell us, how do you make the diagnosis of a TIA? TIA is a clinical diagnosis. The symptoms are the same for people who have had a stroke. Neurologists, we love our neuroanatomy and our localization skills. And this is one time that these skills are critical to practitioners. We have to decide if the symptoms described can fit into a particular vascular territory. Unilateral limb weakness, speech disturbances, sensory disturbances, visual disturbances, and gait difficulty are common. Monocular blindness is more common in TIA than it is in stroke. Ataxia and hemianopias are less common in TIAs than they are in stroke. TIAs have negative symptoms, the absence of sensation, the absence of vision, whereas mimics are more likely to have positive symptoms. These are the pins and needle sensations that patients will often describe. Headaches and loss of consciousness are other symptoms that can be helpful because they are less likely in TIA and stroke. Depending on which study you read, somewhere between 15 to 30% of strokes have symptoms of TIA prior to their stroke, and somewhere between 2 and 17% of transient ischemic attacks have stroke in the first 90 days after their TIA. Okay, thank you very much indeed. That's very helpful. Let's move on to tests and, uh, and what, what tests you would request uh, in somebody who's had a TIA. Yeah, so for most patients who have had a TIA, um, testing um, is 
the same as what we would get in a stroke workup, thinking about MRIs, blood vessel imaging, an echocardiogram, and an EKG. Evaluating each particular patient for their risk factors to decide what testing is needed is also critical. Some patients who sound like they've had a TIA may need prolonged heart monitoring to ensure that they don't have an arrhythmia. And are there any recent advances in diagnosis or investigations for TIA? I would say that telemedicine and telestroke has really helped with the diagnosis of TIA. Stroke and telemedicine networks are growing stronger every year. I can provide specialty stroke care in a rural location within minutes. I have a really strong connection with our telestroke sites, and they feel empowered to call and ask questions, even if the patient doesn't meet criteria for a code stroke. In my opinion, there has been a greater diagnosis of stroke on imaging because of the capacity to obtain MRIs quickly and expediently in more emergency departments. Patients who have previously been sent home for outpatient workup are receiving care that they need in a timely fashion. Of the patients who meet the clinical definition for TIA, about half to two-thirds have MRI abnormalities. And this includes people who have symptoms lasting just minutes. The longer the duration of symptoms, the less likely the MRI will be negative. Studies show that neurologists, stroke neurologists, and non-neurologists don't agree as often as we would like about the diagnosis. Up to 60% of patients referred to a TIA clinic do not have a final diagnosis of TIA. A TIA clinic is one way for rapid specialty evaluation, but it's not available in every center. So we must decide who needs a rapid outpatient workup. The ABCD2 score is one of the risk stratification scales used to decide. The ABCD2 score stratifies patients into high, moderate, and low risk at 90 days. It uses age, presenting blood pressure, clinical features, duration of symptoms, and diabetes to estimate the stroke risk. The scoring system was not designed to determine disposition, but that's how it's commonly used. Each center has a different cutoff for outpatient, ER, and inpatient workup. At my institution, we've created a pathway for TIA patients to allow for expedient care, which includes admission for only the highest risk patients, an ED or outpatient workup, and TIA clinic referral for the rest. Urgent investigation and treatment of TIA or minor ischemic stroke can reduce the risk of recurrent stroke up to 80%. Thank you very much. There's a lot of detail in there. Just let's unpick some of that. Telestroke is, I'm guessing, telemedicine, but in the context of a patient with a suspected or actual TIA or stroke. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Um, and so, we have many sites who, you know, on, on a minute's notice, I will be on camera evaluating a patient and the patient's symptoms to determine what's happened to them. It can be a great way to provide specialty services um, in the middle of, you know, rural Colorado, for example, um, where the patients would otherwise not have access to a neurologist. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. And you mentioned MRI a number of times. Is CT helpful at all some of the time? Or So CTs can be helpful. Um, you know, CTs and TIAs are going to be negative, just like an MRI will be negative. You will not see focal ischemia. So it can be helpful um, in the diagnosis. CTs, if there is going to be stroke, tends not to be positive in the very early acute period. So for those patients who show up with 
TIA-like symptoms but actually have signs of acute ischemia, the early CT will be negative. And you have to wait somewhere between 6 and 12 hours before you start to see any signs of the ischemia. And sometimes that can even be subtle on the CT. Okay, thank you. You mentioned, I think, that 60% of people referred to a TIA clinic do not have a final diagnosis of TIA, which begs the question, what, what do they have? Oh, great. That's a great question. Um, you know, there's a lot of mimics of TIA. The most common mimics are migraine, seizure, syncope, and presyncope, and a functional neurological disorder. This is a hard diagnosis. Every single one of us wants to go back in time and talk to and examine the patient while the symptoms are happening. But most of the time, the patient shows up and their symptoms are completely gone. You know, collateral history can be really helpful in understanding what's happened. And it's up to us to determine what the cause of the symptoms was. Um, any other common pitfalls in diagnosis? You've really mentioned quite a few of them already. A anything else we should mention? Yeah, I really think that is focusing on the mimics and thinking about, you know, how are those patients presenting? What is the evolution of symptoms? How do people show up in the emergency department and describe those symptoms? Was it, you know, all of a sudden? Because TIAs occur out of the blue, no clear warning, and they're maximal at their intensity, and then tend to get better over the course of minutes, generally. Um, whereas some of the mimics, they can have loss of consciousness, which is really uncommon in TIA. Seizures can have speech arrest. Speech is one of the most challenging symptoms that we have to decide what it is. Is the patient just confused? Or did they really have dysarthria or aphasia? And so determining what it was was the cause is probably the biggest pitfall that we have in the diagnosis. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful and comprehensive on diagnosis. Let's move on to management. Tell us about the mainstay of management in a patient with a TIA. TIAs are treated like strokes. I strongly believe that TIAs are just as serious as stroke. Antiplatelets and high-dose, high-potency statins are our mainstays of treatment. Patients should be started on secondary prevention immediately and not wait to see a neurologist or other outpatient follow-up before starting on secondary stroke prevention. What antiplatelets should, should patients start? Yeah, I think that that depends. Um, so there have been a bunch of trials looking at antiplatelets and dual antiplatelets recently, um, starting all the way back with the CHANCE trial back in 2013, looking at dual antiplatelets with clopidogrel and aspirin versus aspirin alone. It was in a Chinese population, and it showed that there was a lower stroke risk without a significant increase in bleeding. But of course, there were concerns about the Chinese population being able to be extrapolated to other patient populations like mine. And then in 2018, the POINT trial came out. Again, used dual antiplatelets, clopidogrel with a load, plus aspirin for, for 90 days. They excluded a lot of the mimics in this trial to really try to get a pure, a pure diagnosis of TIA. And again, it found that there was a lower incidence of stroke, but a higher incidence of major bleeding events. And so a subsequent analysis looked at it and said, gosh, at 21 days, we see the most benefit. And so it could be that the 21 days of antiplatelets is really the correct dose, just like they did in chance. 
So the Sampras trial and the Thales trial also um, have looked at antiplatelets, but this time with intracranial stenosis. And so when the artery is narrowed in the Sampras trial, 70 to 99%, and in the Thales trial, greater than 50%, they use dual antiplatelets. Aspirin plus clopidogrel in Sampras and ticagrelor in Thales with aspirin. And we found in both cases that dual antiplatelets did well. The goal of Sampras was not to actually look at the utility of dual antiplatelets. It was actually to look at surgical management. And so in my mind, Thales and Sampras provide data for dual antiplatelets in the setting of TIA and stenosis, while point and chance show that patients without stenosis may also benefit from dual antiplatelets if they have high-risk features. Great. Thank you. Um, High-potency statins, I think you mentioned. T tell us about that. Yeah, so a high-dose, high-potency statin. There are some statins, rosuvastatin, atorvastatin, that are high-dose, high-potency. There's no lower limit to LDL anymore, so ensuring patients are on the correct dose is really critical. There are patients who are statin intolerant. There are other options other than statins. And of course, this could probably be its own BMJ podcast. Okay, okay, well, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's not go down that route too far. Um, what about patients with atrial fibrillation? So you have atrial fibrillation and you have a TIA. What would you recommend? Yes, atrial fibrillation is pretty common in patients who have TIA. Either we find it as a result of the TIA or, um, you know, it's known prior. You know, people will, also oft people will often use the CHADS2 VASC score to decide what the risk of stroke is with atrial fibrillation and whether they need to be on a, um, an anticoagulant. And in my opinion, once people have had a TIA or a stroke, an anticoagulant is warranted. The choice of anticoagulant needs to be personalized, but certainly thinking about putting a patient on anticoagulation is recommended. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna push and ask you a tough question now. What if you have atrial fibrillation and you're on warfarin and you have a TIA? What would you recommend then? Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, there are times where folks will recommend transitioning to a different anticoagulant there's not a lot of great evidence to indicate that changing anticoagulants is beneficial, um, but certainly it's in some ways treating us and making us more comfortable. We know that warfarin doesn't prevent every stroke. We know that Eliquis or Pixaban does not prevent every stroke. And so in some ways we have to weigh the risks and benefits of the anticoagulant that they're on to the risks and benefits of, of having another stroke as well as quality of life with the anxiety of knowing this could happen again. Yeah, ab absolutely. Thank you. Um, and you mentioned surgical management, I think. Um, tell us about that, uh, Jennifer. So most people do not advocate for intracranial management of, of TIA and stroke. You know, we talked about the Sampras trial. The Sampras trial really found that medical management was superior to surgical management in these patients. However, carotid management is different. We, when we see that the people have had a stroke or a TIA that's referable to the carotid, we recommend that people have surgery. And in the setting of TIA, that surgery could even happen within the first two weeks based upon the clinical guidelines that we have. Okay, so if somebody has an anterior circulation TIA, 
should they have a carotid ultrasound or, uh, or, or, or other investigations? Yeah, that's one of the things that we get asked pretty commonly. You know, we'll see patients anecdotally that the patient will have had a carotid Doppler, for example, um, but it's really clear that the patient presented with symptoms that are referable to that particular territory. And the patient re-presents with stroke, but this time intracranial stenosis or occlusion is found. In my opinion, if you have strong concern about intracranial disease, getting a CTA or an MRA is superior to a carotid ultrasound. Okay, thank you. Um, this is excellent, really a lot of detail in here. What about pitfalls in management? What would you say are the common pitfalls of management? I think that probably the most common pitfalls in management are inside of the assessment, ensuring that you have the correct diagnosis as well as getting people on the correct treatment in a timely manner. Again, not waiting till patients follow up in their outpatient setting. Making sure that they get all of their tests in a timely manner can be really helpful, but really challenging all at the same time. Our medical systems aren't set up for urgent outpatient care. Last question, which is a question about questions, really. What other common questions do you get asked about TIAs? What have we missed? I think that the question that I get the most often is, was this a TIA? This is a purely clinical diagnosis, and these are really hard, even for those of us who are experts. We don't get to interview the patient. We don't get to examine the patient, and it's really uncomfortable to make a clinical diagnosis because we have no good test to rule in the diagnosis. We have to be vigilant. We can't anchor too early on a diagnosis because missing one of the mimics could be really serious. Patient education is critical. TIAs should be a wake-up call, explaining to patients what happened, why you think it happened, and what we can do to prevent future cerebrovascular events is key to ongoing good patient health. The patients themselves, they're back to normal, and it can be hard for them to understand that a stroke could be coming in the days to weeks. Talking to them about their risk factors, things that can be changed, things that can't, can be really helpful. We're all taught to talk about medication use and adherence, but we forget to talk about lifestyle changes. These could be really important. The Mediterranean diet with the emphasis on monounsaturated fats, plant-based foods and fish consumption with either extra virgin olive oil or nut supplementation, in addition to a low-fat diet, could be really helpful. A low-salt diet like the DASH diet can be helpful. Again, it also limits red and processed meats and emphasizes whole grains in addition to the low-salt recommendation. But for some, a major diet change just isn't possible. So meeting them where they are and encouraging small changes, like starting with a salad at the beginning of the meal or substituting one meal a week for plant-based foods can be a really great way to help them make changes. Okay, thank you. And, and smoking as well, I guess I should mention stopping smoking. Yes, of course. Um, stopping smoking is is one of the things that we know um, can help, especially with intracranial atherosclerosis. Um, smoking is a major risk factor for ongoing strokes, small lacunar strokes, intracranial atherosclerosis. So stopping smoking is incredibly challenging, but can be great for a patient's long-term health. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I should have asked you in management, but I, I, I forgot, is about blood pressure control post-TIA. So if you have a TIA and your blood pressure 
is raised afterwards, what should you do? Our goal is normotension. We don't wait. After a patient has a stroke, sometimes we'll wait to lower the blood pressure, but in transient ischemic attack, we don't wait. We ask for patients to monitor their blood pressures at home and see if they are really truly elevated, um, but starting a medication as soon as you recognize that the patient has hypertension can be a great way to lower their blood pressure. Okay, thank you very much, Jennifer, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.